Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault, suicide, sex work, explicit sex, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. There's an old saying, if you love something, set it free. For most people in love, this is an impossible paradox. Who wants to let go of something you love? And when the thing you love is a person, things get more complicated. Abe Sada was faced with that dilemma herself. But when she felt like her hand was being forced, she gathered the strength to say goodbye to her lover. Only she had no intention of letting him go. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll meet Abe Sada, a young Japanese woman who longed to be a geisha, but was unable to join the elite profession. We'll follow Sada's journey through sex work and romance and learn about the passionate romance with a married man that changed her life forever. Next week, we'll look at Sada's gruesome crime and her attempts to evade authorities. Then we'll cover her sensational court case and discuss her lasting cultural legacy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. On an unknown date in 1905, Abe Sada was born in Tokyo. At the time, she was the family's seventh child. One more child followed, but only Sada and three of her older siblings would live to adulthood. 
This made Sada the unofficial baby of the family. Her father, Abe Shigeyoshi, was a good, honest man, but he spent most of his time focused on the family mat-making business, not on his children. Sada's mother, Abe Katsu, doted on her youngest daughter. She spoiled Sada, giving her free reign to do as she pleased. Luckily for Katsu, Sada shared many of her mother's interests, namely singing and playing the shamisen, a traditional Japanese instrument. These two hobbies might sound mundane, but at the time in Japan, they were skills closely associated with geisha, and that was a subject that fascinated Sada. Geishas were female entertainers who went through years of training in order to perform certain skills, such as dancing or pouring ceremonial tea. Coming to prominence in the 17th century, their function was to flirt and entertain only, not to give sexual favors to their male patrons. The only exception was if a client wanted to enter into a long-term commitment with a particular geisha. Only then would she be expected to perform sexual acts. But most of the time, sex was off the table. Though things were starting to change in the early 20th century, some women couldn't complete the training required to be the most elite kind of geisha, so they charged less for their services. And the lesser the price, the more their male clients assumed the rule about sex didn't apply. As a result, many in the higher classes looked down on geisha as little more than sex workers. But in the middle and lower classes, geisha were still idolized. And to girls like Sada, they embodied a pure and perfect vision of femininity. Sada coveted their beauty and desperately wanted their artistic skills. Still, she knew a future as one was unlikely. Her family expected her to make a good marriage, to be a wife and mother, not an entertainer. And that was that, for now. As Sada entered her teens, drama took hold in the Abe household. Sada's older siblings frequently disagreed over who would inherit the family business. Sometimes their fights escalated into violence. Not wanting Sada to witness these confrontations, her parents often sent her out of the house until things cooled down. Out on the town, Sada met a group of new friends, young women who were also given the freedom to leave the house unsupervised. Together, they explored the city, often venturing into questionable neighborhoods. But Sada never thought to be wary of the people in her own group. One night, 15-year-old Sada went over to a friend's house, where she met an older boy named Sakuragi Ken. Sada and Ken spent the evening talking, and at some point, ended up alone in a room upstairs. By Sada's own account, the two started to play around, and then, all of a sudden, Ken forced himself on top of her. Afterward, Sada told her mother about the assault. Though rape wasn't uncommon, especially by acquaintances, going to the police to report it just wasn't done. Doing so would require Sada to publicly confess to what had happened, which would ruin her reputation forever. It was far better for the families to deal with this privately. In other words, for Katsu to arrange a marriage between her daughter and her attacker. 
But Ken's parents refused to even hear Katsu's proposal. They were of a higher social class than Sada's family and would never allow their son to marry beneath his station. Sada couldn't believe that a man could completely disregard his obligations. The assault would have no consequences for his life or reputation, only hers. The injustice of this sent her spiraling, first into grief, then denial, and then confusion. Before we continue with Sada's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to clinical psychiatrist Dr. Caitlin A. Chivers-Wilson in her 2006 paper, Sexual Assault and Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, sexual assault survivors go through three distinct phases. The first is the acute phase, which happens immediately after the assault, when the survivor is in crisis and experiences a wide range of emotional reactions. For Sada, this meant alternating between crying in bed and moments of pure rage. The second stage Dr. Chivers-Wilson outlines is the outward adjustment phase. At this stage, survivors enter a high level of denial as they try to get back to their normal, everyday activities. Sada wrote in her memoirs that she wanted to banish all memories of the assault from her mind and tried to convince herself that she could still have the life she had always planned on. The third and final phase identified by Dr. Chivers-Wilson is long-term reorganization. At this point, survivors integrate the assault into their view of themselves. According to author William Johnston in his book Geisha, Harlot, Strangler, Star, Sada internalized all she had learned from the attack, that men were dishonest, that obligations meant nothing, and that she couldn't trust anyone. Having moved through all of these phases, Sada struggled to discern between right and wrong, and because of this, she started to push boundaries. It was nothing too alarming at first. She slept in every morning and stayed out late each night, fairly typical behavior from a teenager, but soon she was stealing money from her parents to spend while out in the city, and whatever she didn't spend, she gave away to her friends. Then, a year after her assault, Sada had another sexual encounter. This one was consensual, but it was brief and meaningless. In her mind, she was now damaged goods, so she had no reason not to enjoy herself. Sada's parents were aware of what was happening, but they looked the other way. It seemed that they wanted to give her space to process the assault, but eventually they felt compelled to do something. They decided that their best option was to send Sada away to work as a housemaid to a wealthy family's daughter. They hoped this would give her some stability and focus. But 16-year-old Sada felt trapped in her new position. She was used to wandering the city as she pleased and having no restrictions on her time. For the first month, she managed to stay on her best behavior, but after that, she simply couldn't be confined any longer. One day, she stole a kimono and ring from her mistress and wore them out into the city. Sada had every intention of bringing the stolen items back. In her mind, she'd simply borrowed them. But before she could return to the house, the police found her. They brought her back, where she was promptly fired. 
After that, Sada returned home to her parents. Only now, she wasn't the only child her parents had to worry about. Her older brother Shintaro had run off with the family's savings, leaving them destitute. Sada's father's only recourse was to sell his business, and soon Sada and her parents packed up their belongings and left Tokyo for the countryside. But Sada hated it there. She was used to life in a big city and suddenly had nothing to do. To keep herself entertained, 17-year-old Sada started dressing up like a geisha, with elaborate kimonos and stylized hair and makeup. She'd done this as a child, but now she didn't just frolic around the house. She wore her costume out to local restaurants, where she attracted the attention of many men. Before long, she was having multiple affairs. For her, sex no longer meant anything. It was just an activity to bring relief from the tedium of her life. After a few of these encounters, Sada began to strongly consider becoming a geisha for real. After all, she believed that her plan of being a wife and mother had been tossed out the window after her assault. Maybe now she really could be a geisha. Sada's father warmed to the idea, although his motivation was slightly different than hers. He wanted to control his daughter's promiscuity. Selling her to a geisha house could be a solution. This might not seem to make sense, but in 1920s Japan, it wasn't unheard of for women to join geisha houses or even brothels for a short period and then come home to marry. First off, it was totally legal for parents to sell their daughters into sex work. And second, a history of sex work didn't prevent someone from making a respectable match. While Sada may have considered the assault a stain on her reputation, the cultural attitude towards sex work was much different, at least for everyone outside the ruling class. In fact, Sada's father had sold Sada's sister to a brothel for the same reason, and it worked out just fine. After she returned, she went on to marry an acceptable man. So in July 1922, Sada's father sold his 18-year-old daughter to a geisha house in Yokohama. He and his wife both hoped that this new venture would give Sada a sense of security and stability and that she might return in a few years having matured. But Sada was to find that life as a geisha held little resemblance to her fantasy. Up next, Sada learns what it takes to be an elite geisha. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone. A soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with? Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast Limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers. 
fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. As a young woman, Abe Sada assumed she would grow up to be a wife and mother, but at 15, she was sexually assaulted, which significantly shifted her outlook on her prospects. Afterward, Sada spiraled, until finally in 1922, when she was 18, her father sold her to a geisha house. When Sada arrived at the geisha house, she believed she would eventually be one of its highly trained performers. All she needed to do was work hard and pay attention. But at 18, she was getting a late start. Other elite geisha had already put in years of training by the time they were Sada's age. Not only that, as the newest geisha apprentice, she was judged harshly for every little thing she did. After only a few weeks, the pressure was too much for her. She transferred to another geisha house called Shunshin Mino. There, Sada thrived. She rose quickly through the ranks, graduating from apprentice to full-fledged geisha. But even with this official distinction, she still found herself at a disadvantage. She simply couldn't compete with the geisha who'd been training since childhood. Plus, the men who patronized these new-wave geisha establishments didn't want to hear her sing or watch her dance. They wanted sexual favors. At first, Sada turned her nose up at the idea of selling herself for sex, but it quickly became apparent that doing so would be the best way for her to make money. A geisha needed to earn an income in order to pay back her debts to the house for things like room and board. Then, once a geisha managed to pay that back, she still needed money to buy clothes and cosmetics. So, to justify it to herself, Sada decided to think of sex as play instead of work. At least that way, she could pretend she was getting something out of it. And she told herself that no matter what, she was finally a geisha, something she'd always aspired to be. But as far as Japanese society was concerned, Sada was much closer to a sex worker than a revered geisha. The worst part was, she wasn't even making the kind of money a legal sex worker could make. Geishas may have been highly regarded, but their income paled in comparison to what a sex worker could clear. Sada felt trapped, so she lashed out, mainly by stealing items from the other geisha and pawning them off for a little extra cash. According to ethicist and professor Muel Kaptein, people who feel that their choices are already predetermined are actually more likely to bend the rules. This was certainly the case for Sada, who was stuck in her employment. 
On the surface, her actions were a ploy to get more spending money, but at a deeper level, her life had spiraled out of her control, and she was looking for a way to take back her agency. For a little while, it seemed to work. Sada got away with a few thefts, and she felt driven by the sense of purpose it gave her. But eventually, she was caught, and once again, the police were involved. In the end, they didn't charge her with theft, but her new geisha house let her go. Sada was distraught. She may not have liked the work she was doing at Shunshin Mino, but it was the only thing she knew how to do. She didn't see herself being successful in any other ventures, especially not if people knew about her background. She wanted to find work as a geisha again, and a family friend arranged for her to work at another house. It was called Mikawaya. But this geisha house was little more than a brothel. And, like a brothel, it required all of its women to undergo regular syphilis examinations. At Mikawaya, no one had any delusions about what went on behind closed doors. So Sada submitted to the test and found out she was positive. The diagnosis stunned her. The one thing she'd held on to all this time was that she wasn't a sex worker. She was a geisha. And yet, she had contracted an STD. Now, Sada realized that she'd been lying to herself. She was a sex worker, plain and simple. And if she just accepted it, she could make a lot more money. But it wasn't an easy transition for her to make. She spent the next several years performing sexual acts as a geisha and moving from one house to another, perhaps building the courage to leave her dream behind. Finally, on New Year's Day, 1927, 22-year-old Sada moved to Osaka and began her new life. She began work at a brothel called Misonoro, which she later described in her memoirs as having sophisticated clientele. She convinced herself that she was happy enough with her choice and threw herself into her work. But just as she had at her previous workplaces, Sada grew disillusioned. Soon she found herself wanting to leave the sex industry entirely. However, leaving was much easier said than done, especially in 1920s Japan, where registered sex workers were legally bound to their contracts. If they ever tried to leave their jobs without permission, brothel owners could prosecute them to the full extent of the law. Sometimes that meant tracking the woman down and dragging her back to her post. Other times, it meant seizing property from the woman's families to compensate. Over the next three years, Sada moved from brothel to brothel, dreaming about the day she could leave the sex industry for good. Each day made her more unhappy, and she desperately wanted to start over somewhere new. She tried multiple times to escape, but at least once she made the mistake of telling people her plans, leading to her capture. Even when she stayed quiet about her intentions, she was still given up to the authorities and brought back to work. And each time this happened, she was sent to a worse establishment. Gradually, she fell further and further down the totem pole until she was forced to stand out on the streets and lure customers inside, which at the time was an extremely demeaning position. 
But Sada could not be deterred. She was determined to escape. In 1932, after nearly 10 years of life as a geisha and then a sex worker, 27-year-old Sada made one last attempt. This time, she managed to slip away from her brothel undetected. She made a beeline for the train and fled to the city of Kobe. There, she changed her name and slipped into obscurity. And this time, she made sure not to tell anyone where she had gone. Sada had learned her lesson. If she wanted to be free, the only person she could trust was herself. In Kobe, Sada found work as a waitress. But the pay was dismal, and Sada had grown used to a certain lifestyle. For all the things she disliked about the geisha houses and brothels, at least her everyday needs were always taken care of. Now she was completely on her own, struggling to make ends meet. Within a few months, now 28-year-old Sada returned to sex work, but this time as a mistress. At first, Sada was a mistress to three different men. She found that it was the best of both worlds. She was still selling sex, but now she had a say in which men she engaged with, and she kept it to a select few. This was a major turning point for her. For the first time in many years, Sada enjoyed sex again. To her, this setup felt less transactional and more relational. Sure, the men were still paying her, but they were paying for her company first and her sexual favors second. It made a huge difference in Sada's mind. Now, at last able to enjoy sex, she was surprised by the strength of her desire. She had spent so many years resenting sex and what it symbolized in her life. But now that she had some agency over her body again, she found that she didn't just enjoy sex, she needed it. Over the next few years, she was involved with several men. Most of them she enjoyed. But in 1935, after a dismal breakup with one of them, 30-year-old Sada fled to Nagoya to start over again. There, she tried once again to make a clean break from her previous profession. She got another job as a waitress, and things seemed to be going well. But old habits die hard. In April of that year, Sada met an aspiring politician named Goro Omiya, who came to her restaurant multiple times. He took an immediate liking to Sada. She thought he was a gentleman and wanted him to like her, so she lied about her background. She told him that her husband had died and that she was working to save up money to care for her infant daughter back in Tokyo. Omiya bought the story, and he kept coming back to the restaurant to spend more time with Sada. One night, not long after they met, he invited her to join him for dinner in a private room. As the two sat next to each other and talked, Sada scooted closer to him. She knew what she wanted, and it was him. She put a hand on his lap, and he warned her that it was arousing. They should be careful, he said, in case anyone came into the room. But Sada wasn't worried about that. She pressed in closer, and then Omiya couldn't hold himself back any longer. The two had sex right there in the restaurant. 
Over the next three years, Sada and Omiya had a passionate, off-and-on relationship. They saw each other as often as possible, but Omiya traveled for work a lot, and Sada herself wasn't keen on spending too much time in one place. All the while, she continued earning money as a mistress for a few other men. Eventually, she moved back to Tokyo, making up a story about how her fake daughter had died so that Omiya wouldn't wonder where the little girl was. Omiya didn't find out Sada was lying to him then, but at some point he learned the truth about Sada. She had never been married, but had been a sex worker instead. Interestingly, this didn't seem to faze him. But then, Sada contracted syphilis again. That was enough for Omiya to ease off for a bit, if only for his own health. But even if he wasn't rushing to have sex with her, he still took care of Sada. He even sent her to a hot springs resort to try to cure the disease. When 31-year-old Sada returned from the resort in January 1936, Omiya suggested that she try her hand at running a small business instead of engaging in any more sex work. He thought she could eventually run a restaurant herself. She just needed to apprentice somewhere to learn the ins and outs of the business. Sada liked the idea of that. This could be her chance to truly put her past behind her. So she started looking around for opportunities. Less than a month later, in February of 1936, Sada began work as an apprentice at the Yoshidaya restaurant in Tokyo. But rather than keeping her head down and learning the ropes, she found her attention focused on something else. Her married boss. Up next, a passionate affair turns into a deadly obsession. Now back to the story. After escaping her brothel's employment contract, Abe Sada fled to a new city and became a mistress to wealthy men. This work provided her with an excellent lifestyle for years and led her to meet the last of her main patrons, Goro Omiya. But in 1936, Omiya suggested 31-year-old Sada get out of the sex industry for good. At his encouragement, she took a new job as a waitress in a Tokyo restaurant called Yoshidaya. The restaurant was owned by 42-year-old Kichizo Ishida, but was run by his wife, Otoku. Ishida had been a great businessman for many years, but by this point in his life, he was less concerned with work and more focused on maintaining affairs with various women. When Sada started work at Yoshidaya, she thought Ishida was attractive, but she didn't think of him as anything other than the restaurant's proprietor. Most of her days were spent working side by side with his wife. But while Sada may not have been thinking much about Ishida, he was certainly intrigued by her. Only a short time after she started working for him, Ishida began making advances. At first, it was flirtatious banter, then playful touches in hallways, and soon it escalated to overtly sexual behavior. During this time, Sada was still technically with Omiya, but their sexual relationship had seemingly fizzled out. He wanted to help her become financially independent and promised to support her however he could, but he no longer wanted her for sex. 
Sada might have taken offense to that, except that she already had someone else interested in her, so it wasn't really an issue. It seems that more than anything else, Sada loved feeling wanted, and Ishida definitely accomplished that. He made it extremely apparent that he was attracted to her, and when he couldn't take the workplace foreplay any longer, he arranged for the two to be alone together. One night while working, Sada was asked to bring some sake to a customer in a private back room. She did as ordered, only to find Ishida waiting for her there. He pulled her onto his lap, and it was clear what he wanted. Before they could become intimate, a geisha arrived and sang them a song. It was as if Ishida knew the power the geisha had over Sada. As soon as she heard the woman sing, Sada was utterly entranced. After the geisha exited the room, Sada and Ishida turned to each other. They had sex right there in the back room, while his wife was only a short ways away, running the restaurant. It wasn't the only time they had sex at the restaurant, either. After that night, the two couldn't keep their hands off each other. They tried to slip away at every possible opportunity. One time, a maid even walked in on them, and soon, everyone who worked at the restaurant knew about the affair. But that didn't stop them. According to Japanese norms at the time, it was Ishida's prerogative as a man to engage in whatever sexual encounters he wanted. Meanwhile, his wife Otoku had had an affair of her own a year earlier, so she looked the other way and allowed it to go on. As things progressed, Sada and Ishida realized that even if they could keep having sex at the restaurant, they probably should find another place. So in April of 1936, Sada and Ishida got a room at a tea house, which was the Japanese equivalent of a love hotel. They only planned on a brief stay to have sex, but ended up staying for four days straight. Leading up to the tryst, Sada wasn't sure that her encounters with Ishida would amount to anything more than a fling. But during their time at the tea house, something changed. She fell completely and utterly in love with Ishida. She felt that he trusted her with his secrets, that he was intimate with her, not just physically, but emotionally too. They left the tea house around April 27th, only to move to another establishment. They didn't want Ishida's wife to find them. She may have accepted the affair, but that didn't mean she wanted her husband to be gone for a week straight. But by now, it seems neither Ishida or Sada cared about what Otoku wanted. They had other things on their mind. At the new tea house, Sada and Ishida continued to roll in the sheets and get drunk on sake. They even had Geisha come and sing to them again. When they finally decided to return to the real world, it was only because they had run out of money. They had to return to their normal lives to refill their purses. But as she said goodbye, Sada found herself overwhelmed with jealousy. In the last two weeks, she had fallen in love with Ishida, and it tore her to pieces that he had to go back to another woman, even if it was to his wife. She wanted him all to herself, and she couldn't stop thinking about it. 
But then a solution to her problem presented itself during a trip to the theater. On May 9, 1936, Sada attended a play called New Tales of the Erotic. The story fascinated her, especially the part where a geisha stabs her lover with a knife. That night, as Sada exited the theater, a thought took hold in her mind. Ishida would never be entirely hers, but there had to be a way to control Ishida to make him belong to her. Suddenly, she saw another path towards that, a way that they could be together forever. They had to die, both of them. She would kill him first, and then herself. In a strange way, with this decision, Sada was taking on a traditionally masculine role in the relationship. While women often get jealous of their romantic partners, it's very rare that they resort to violence or commit murder. This is much more common for men. And according to Professor Aaron Benzaev, when men murder their wives, it's often out of a fear of being left. They kill as a way to control the relationship and make it last forever. This was exactly what Sada was doing. Like the men in Benzaev's case studies, she felt that her entire identity was now wrapped up in Ishida. If she couldn't have him completely, then she didn't know how to be in a relationship with him at all. Sharing him simply wasn't an option anymore. So, two days later, she bought a knife. That same night, Sada met Ishida for another round of intense lovemaking. They remained in bed for two days, and the entire time, Sada was conflicted. She loved this man, but she also hated that he wasn't hers. He swore that he hadn't slept with his wife since he and Sada had become lovers, but she simply didn't believe him. At some point, probably when the jealousy flared up, Sada showed Ishida the small knife she had brought with her. She held it close to his genitals and told him he could never be with another woman, otherwise she would carve him up. Ishida laughed at her comment. He thought she was just playing around. He had no idea that there was something much darker going on with his lover. Later, as the two laid in bed together, Sada suggested they either run away, leaving their old lives behind, or else die by suicide together. Once again, Ishida didn't take her words seriously. He saw no reason they couldn't continue on with their relationship just the way it was. But Sada knew better. It didn't matter if he couldn't see things the way she could. She would take care of everything for the both of them. Sada waited for the perfect moment to end her lover's life, and it came in the early hours of May 18th. After a particularly rough bout of sex where the couple experimented with choking, Ishida took a sedative to help with the lingering pain. As the drugs kicked in, he turned to Sada and jokingly told her not to strangle him in his sleep. Sada laid in bed next to her lover and watched as he dozed off. She wondered whether he had sensed what she was planning or if it had indeed just been a joke. 
It didn't matter either way. Her mind was made up. When she was sure he was fast asleep, Sada sat up. This was the moment. She grabbed her silk sash and wrapped it around Ishida's neck. He opened his eyes just as Sada whispered, Forgive me. And then she pulled the sash tight. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, where Sada finally goes through with her murderous plan. For more information on Abe Sada, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Geisha Harlot Strangler Star, A Woman, Sex, and Morality in Modern Japan by William Johnston. Extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.